Welcome everybody to ACCA. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet this evening and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Uh, in conjunction with this exhibition titled Greater Together, focusing on collaboration in contemporary art practice, the Future Forum series uh, invites experts to assess ideas of collaboration, cooperation and collectivity. We also invite you, the audience, to respond to tonight's talk and there will be an opportunity for conversation at the end. Tonight we'll discuss communication and the pluses and minuses of the internet. We'll reflect on the current state of traditional media with the rise of digital technologies and communications. And to this end, I'd like to introduce Eric Jensen. Eric Jensen is the founding editor of the Saturday paper. His first book, Acute Misfortune, The Life and Death of Adam Cullen, won the, N the Nib Prize for Lip Literature and was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and the Walkley Book Award. His journalism has won the Walkley Award for Young Print Journalists of the Year and the UNAA's Media Peace Prize. Please welcome Eric. Thanks very much. Um, I should start by saying I have a, a cold, so my voice is not always as deep as this. Don't, don't be um, alarmed. It's much more girly a lot of the time. Um, I, I also just want to um, begin by acknowledging that we are uh, on the land of the um, Wurundjeri people of the Kulam Nation, and uh, to pay respect, of course, to elders past, present, and future. Um, and in saying that also, to recognise that this land was taken. It was taken by violence and legal fiction. And until we have treaty, until we have recognition, until reparations are paid for the hurts done to our first peoples, we won't, as a country, be, be one. Um, I did write a speech, which is rare for me as well, so I uh, apologise that I will be reading it. Um, I want to start by telling a story. The story begins with a book. On the cover of the book is a pencil, stood on one end so as to look like a skyscraper. This detail is unimportant to the story, but it helps in remembering that the book was first published in 1973. The book is an anthology of new journalism collected by Tom Wolfe. It is a kind of argument against fiction, a case for the failure of the novel and its replacement by a form of novelistic feature writing. The book had an enormous impact on me as a writer. Uh, in, in its pages, I discovered the people who would become my heroes. It was also in this book that I read for the first time the writing of Gay Talese. Talese is immortalised by several major works and by an article in which he fails to speak to Frank Sinatra. The piece, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, is perhaps the most important example of profile writing in modern journalism. It was published in Esquire, which used to be a good magazine, in 1966, and was written wholly from observation. Sinatra is present, he speaks even, but he is never interviewed. He comes into focus because he has always been in focus. Talisa's journalism is the act of noticing. The piece finishes a week from Sinatra's 50th birthday. There is a final moment of observation, the culmination of months of looking, the familiarity that comes from familiarity. 
I'll quote a bit here. Frank Sinatra stopped his car. The light was red. Pedestrians passed quickly across his windshield, but, as usual, one did not. It was a girl in her 20s. She remained at the curb staring at him. Through the corner of his left eye, he could see her, and he knew, because it happened almost every day, that she was thinking, it looks like him, but is it? Just before the light turned green, Sinatra turned toward her, looked directly into her eyes, waiting for the reaction he knew would come. It came, and he smiled. She smiled, and he was gone. This is the first act in my story. I tell it because it speaks of the esteem in which Gaetalese is held. He was there when a new kind of journalism was being made. He gave a ring of artful credibility to what we do, to the ugly act of writing to deadline, of taking down other people's thoughts, of making jottings from the world. Last year, Gaetalese published what will likely be his last book. This is my story's second act, and there is not a third. The Voyeurs Motel was still two weeks from publication when reports showed it to be a fraud, at least in part. Talese disavowed the book before changing his mind and standing by it. The headline on the review in The Independent fills in much of the rest. Spare yourself the trouble of reading this seedy little book, which I think is very good direct headline writing. Uh, I actually spared myself the trouble of reading the review on the basis of that, because it uh, strongly indicates what is to come. Um, the book concerns Gerald Foos, with whom Talese corresponded for more than 30 years. Foos owned a motel in Colorado where he'd cut peepholes into the ceiling so he could crouch in the attic and observe couples having sex. I have to say, there is a reason I'm telling the story. It's not just for titillation. That goes on for a bit. <laughs> uh, he documented this voyeurism in meticulous diaries which he shared with Talese and which formed the basis of the book. But a simple title search showed that for a significant stretch covered by the book, Foos did not own the motel. A murder he claimed to have witnessed was never documented. The peepholes certainly existed, and he had certainly violated the privacy of his guests with these peepholes, as Talese had done the first night he visited and crouched in the attic with Foos. But his story was shot through with holes. There were lies here, and lies that were easily tested, but they were not tested. Talese was a journalist of a different generation. He allowed the story to better his scepticism. I say all this to observe a simple fact. The journalism we have today is in many respects better than the journalism of the past, and it is better because of the internet. This seems counterintuitive. The internet has destroyed the business model on which newspapers had been founded. It has taken the classified advertising that once paid for the expensive realities of reporting. It emptied the newsrooms of their staff and has not created enough similar jobs on new platforms. None of this is a surprise, and certainly none of it is something that has not been said before. I'm tempted to, co uh, sorry, I'm tempted to quote Rupert Murdoch to this end. In 1998, at a conference in Singapore, he dismissed internet stocks as overvalued. I should say this is the same man who, um, who bought MySpace in 2005 for $580 million, and that, that transaction was not a roaring success by any means. I think he went on to sell it to, um, to Justin Timberlake, which is not ideally you, you know, your buyer a second choice. But anyway, Rupert Murdoch said that, uh, that internet stocks were, were overvalued. He said something else at this conference as well, which is important. He warned that the internet would destroy more businesses than it created. And at the time, that seemed like a very plausible way to look at what the internet would do to business. But the sentiment is not actually true. 
The internet has not destroyed more businesses than it's created, but it has destroyed more jobs than it has created. And this is an important difference. It's also fundamentally altered businesses. And in particular, it's fundamentally altered journalism. And the surprise is that there is some good in that fact. Because the internet has made journalism serve readers. That's the model now. Where once newspapers built large audiences and then found advertisers who would like to reach those audiences, news outlets must now sell their journalism directly to their readers. There is more money to be made from subscriptions than there is to be made from advertising. And this changes fundamentally the compact between readers and journalists. It allows journalism to more specifically and exclusively serve the interests of readers. The first significant example of this took place in 2012 in the profit and loss shit of the sheet, I should say. I have a cold, and I apologize. Profit and loss sheet of the New York Times. Um, and the rest of the media is, is now following. But there are other changes too, and that is the point of the Gay to Lee story. The internet has so improved the access to information that it has, by its nature, improved journalism, even as it's made the funding of journalism more difficult. Talisa's book would have gone unchecked had it not been for the possibility of making online property searches. So too would other information be lost were it not for the searchability of vast databases and the easy access of information. And there's something else important in this also. It's that that searching is not done simply by journalists. The information is more or less available to anyone who wants to look for it. Readers have become the greatest critics of the news and it has become this that... Uh, that means that journalism can less afford to be as sloppy as Talese is or as, as sloppy as the trade once was. And I say this having launched the Saturday paper three and a bit years ago, and for the year before that having spent time spooling through microfiche of old newspapers. I have no hesitation in saying that the basic reporting of a title like the National Times, which I would argue is the high watermark for fearless investigative journalism in this country, is not as clear or as rigorous as the reporting we now get from our admittedly depleted newsrooms. There is simply more information now, and it is more readily prosecuted. And so the lazy sentence or the lazy article is unlikely to go unchecked. In fact, it is likely to be found out. And it is inside that fear, that fear of being caught out, that journalism now exists and that makes journalism better. Which is not to say there isn't terrible journalism happening and happening as we speak. There is, but it's not the only journalism that's happening. There is a tendency in newspapers towards fatalism. Complaint is the white noise of every newsroom. Pessimism is the mode of preference among journalists, I would argue, and it's why we focus on the bad done by the internet. It's also why I prefer to focus on the good. Because traditional media outlets met the internet with cynicism, mostly. Stories were made shorter and less serious on the assumption that people were lazy and dim and that the internet created Oh, sorry, and that the internet catered to their worst impulses. That was actually a very artful sentence before I screwed it up. Uh, I'll just, I'll begin at the beginning of that sentence, not the whole piece, I promise, but I, I think you'll appreciate it. Stories were made shorter and less serious on the assumption that people were lazy and dim and that the internet catered to their worst impulses. Hmm, true, profound. Um, two decades after Rupert Murdoch's prophecy, the available information would suggest that this is not true. Platform is not important, information is. The longer and more serious a story is on the Saturday Papers website, for instance, the better it is likely to perform when it comes to traffic. The problem was never readers, it was what newspapers thought of their readers. I'm supposed to be talking about the future, 
And instead, I've spent much of uh, this, this opening section talking about an 85-year-old pervert. Um, I should clarify that that is not Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch is 86. Uh, Gay Talese is 85. Jared Foos is like 82. I couldn't check exactly, otherwise I would have had a three-part bit there. But um, uh, the internet is less interested in the birth of Jared Foos than they are in when he owned various hotels, unfortunately. Uh, anyway. I digress. Um, I'm, talking, I'm talking about uh, Gaitalese and, and, and the way in which the internet found him out because I think in journalism we have a sometimes dark view of the future. And this view is based on the, uh, it's based on the shadow cast by our notion of a bright past, a kind of golden age for news. But the past was never that bright, or not always, and the future is not that dark. Newsrooms will be smaller, but their journalism will be more explicitly for readers and more accountable. Our industry will be held to a higher standard. Information is a thing in which I most believe, and there will be more of it. The alternative model, the one in which writers such as Talese operated, was based on the assumption that people trusted and accepted the information they were given. It was a journalism based on answers. People no longer have that trust, and it has produced a journalism that is based now on questions, a journalism out in the open, contested, interrogated, and I would argue better for it. This is the future in which news now lives, and I think there is a lot of good in that. Um, I don't know how long the Talese story went for, uh, but I think I'll open up to any sort of broader questions now, if not simply about the, uh, the peephole situation than just about the news generally. Uh, there's, I think this is being recorded, and so if you could wait for a, a microphone to reach you, that would be great. I mean, don't, don't, there's, there, there is one question. Good. It feels like an auction for, uh, for ideas. Oh, yes, to the, to the lady with the red scarf. <laughs> Hello. Um, my question is a very simple one. Uh, given the smaller newsrooms and the, um, but the vast amount of information on the internet, how does uh, a newspaper like yours, a broadsheet, a, uh, a paper newspaper, work as a financial model? Is it financially viable? Yeah, it, it, is, uh, it is viable, and it's, it's viable for the reasons I was trying to outline, which is that journalism that is forced now to serve its readers has to have always in mind the people who will be reading it and, by extension, who will be buying it. Um, and there are, you know, there are people who probably think that is a, a, a bad thing for journalism, that makes journalism dependent on those who can afford it. I don't subscribe to that view because I think journalism is so want to be shared that if we at the Saturday paper break an important story and it costs you $4 to read that story, you will likely, if you need that information, end up reading a news.com.au version of that story. The key information will always be shared. Um, the question is, how do we find a model that pays for the expen expensive act of finding that information? And we do it by trusting in the good of people, essentially. People wish to pay for news because they know news is important and expensive. It's, it's why 
it's why subscribers subscribe to newspapers. They do so not simply for that newspaper, I think. They do it because they know there is a social good in doing it. And so not everyone is going to subscribe to that social good, but enough people will subscribe to that social good. And it also means that, um, that you know, the, the journalism that you're producing has to find an audience. It's, it's why wholly philanthropic news organisations have often lacked purpose, because they've been divorced from audience. And when you take news away from audience, you take it away from, from what is important, which is how it intersects with people's lives and with their interests. And it's, and it's at that uh, intersect that, that news, I think, is most viable. And it's also at that intersect that the models that pay for news are most viable. And my second question is, the audience, the readership of the Saturday paper, do you have um, data to show where they're coming from? And, you know, if you read the Saturday paper, do you also read The Australian, or are you more likely to read Fairfax, or are you more likely to read The New Yorker? Well, what kind of data do you have? Um, so, in terms of geographically where readers of the Saturday paper are, it's, as you would expect, Sydney... Melbourne and Canberra are the largest markets for a publication like the Saturday paper, as they were 30 years ago, the largest markets for a publication like the National Times. And that's to do with education and the density of cities. Um, in terms of what they read, though, um, there is this interesting fragmentation that exists in media where we assume that people have become entirely agnostic about masthead and simply reading information because the bulk of information comes through social feeds and those social feeds do not care about where something was first published. Um, the, the discernment that comes along with reading quality news means that that is somewhat skewed. And so for a large part of the readers of the Saturday paper, I think it's something like 60%, um, they won't be reading anything else at, at a weekend. So they won't be reading the Fairfax Press or the, or the Murdoch Press. They'll simply be reading the Saturday paper. Um, and that comes out of scepticism. It's, it's that, that other question that I tried to address earlier, which is that um, in confronting the internet, newsrooms characterised their readers by their worst impulses and condescended to and undermined that readership. And it has meant that many of those readers no longer want to go to those other newsrooms. Um, which is, you know, which is not to say that it is not healthy to read more than one title. I think it probably is, but um, but it's not the habit of a of a bulk of people who are reading the Saturday paper, for instance. Have I got? Can I ask one more question? Please. Uh, if anyone needs to go home, I mean, we sorry. Can You're pretty young, and you were even younger when you pitched this idea to Maury Schwartz. How, how did the conversation go? Um, it went well. I mean, what did you say? I've got a great idea for a really old-fashioned paper with not much advertising. Well, no, no, I think... Um, I mean, there's two parts to that. One, one is that I, I think the um, advertising ratios are quite strong in the paper. Um, but the other is that it's not, it's not old-fashioned uh, to, I mean, to launch a newspaper, though. I think I, what, what, I, what, what the paper appeals to is a question of... Um, of quality and depth. And I think the problem with, uh, with the way in which we are cynical about society is that we assume that quality and depth is old fashioned. And I don't, I don't subscribe to that view. Um, and so, you know, the, the reason something like the Saturday paper does well is because um, it's, it's willing to accept that what would once have been regarded as, as old fashioned values can actually have contemporary meaning. And I think that was, you know, that was the purpose of launching a newspaper, you know, 
in 2014. Thank you. Thank you, Fiona, for your questions. Just um, building on that third question, how, what kind of, was it just on gut feel or was it your own anger, anger with what was being published at the time? Was it years and years that you'd had the idea or is it simply just that you sat down one day, did all the research and went, no, nah, I'm going to change this? How did you actually know that you had something or was it simply just instinct? Uh... I mean, I think there's, there's a handful of things there. One, Maury Schwartz and I uh, met in, I suppose it would have been 2012 to start talking about um, the Saturday paper, and it turned out that both he and I had similar ideas about how a newspaper might function. Um, and my ideas came out of um, uh, my career having been at Fairfax and probably came out of um, a lot of frustration at a once great news organisation that I thought I was working at and the one that I realised I was working at. But it also came, I think, more importantly from uh, the, the naivety that attaches itself to youth in that I just assume if I have a good idea that it's great and it's going to work. Um, and I think that's a healthy way to, um, to approach the world. And, uh, and maybe it's not about youth because uh, I think Maurice Schwartz has a similar impulse is that if he has a good idea, he thinks it's going to work and, uh, and then just hopes that it does. Um, and, and so, the, you know, the, the paper is founded really at, at a very simple level on an optimistic view of society. And, and I think the, the monthly as a publication or the quarterly essay, any of, any of the publications that, uh, that Murray Schwartz has been involved in are, are founded on that, on that view that, that the country is better and more sophisticated uh, and more serious and more intellectual and more humane than it is often given credit for. And um, if you appeal to those principles, you will find an audience who have simply been waiting for someone to come and speak to them that way. And so it's, um, you know, like, I'm, not, I'm sure that's not a great way to launch all businesses. I'm sure you can't just uh, assume that like people want nicer cakes and um, that that's how you launch a cake shop. But I think when it comes to um, social goods, and I, and I really would argue that, that journalism is a societal good, that you can appeal to high standards and find um, an audience that simply haven't had anyone care to speak to them at a high standard. Um, you mentioned briefly that you weren't convinced that not-for-profit journalism was responsive to the market, and yet, here, we're sitting between the Malthouse and the MTC, which are pretty much the only places in Melbourne, if you want to see quality drama and not Grease or The Bodyguard mm. or other kind of old-fashioned for-profit theater. So if you want to see quality theater, you're going to go to a not-for-profit venue to see it these days. A hundred years ago, Melburnians would have found that hilarious. Mm that theater was a not-for-profit entity because theater was raucous and downright you know, low class in a way. Now it is supported by foundations and wealthy people buy seats. Is that the future for quality journalism? It seems to be. I mean, Maury Schwartz is doing journalism thanks to his real estate business as far as I know. So it's not quite not-for-profit, but it's 
not quite for-profit either. It seems to me that for-profit journalism is seriously at risk. And some people are saying that the government should support journalism. And the government isn't quite sure what to do. But of course, there's the ABC there, hmm. which is, in, in a sense, wholly supported by the government. So what is the future for quality journalism? I think, yeah, that there are assumptions in that question that, um, that undercut the question. The Malthouse and the STC, while subsidized by, oh, sorry, and the MTC, but while subsidized, are for-profit businesses. Um, the Saturday paper is a for-profit business. The Saturday paper um, has a proprietor, but the proprietor doesn't pay for the business. The proprietor, as with all businesses, acts as a kind of underwriter should, should that business need support, but it's not what actually drives that business, and, and which is why I make that argument that not-for-profits don't work, because I think, um, and there, there is a push broadly um, globally in journalism for the reorganisation of media companies to, in certain places, resemble not-for-profits. I actually think that's a, a, a bad way for media companies to, to operate because I, I don't believe a media company should be operating on the basis of being detached from those systems on which it reports. All, all media in some way reports on markets because society, for better or worse, is organised around markets. And I don't think that, um, you know, when I, when I look at, say, the Global Mail as a, as a domestic example, was set up as a news outlet, um, incredibly well-funded news outlet, without purpose or audience. Most people in this room probably don't know what the Global Mail is, but it cost $15 million to not know. Um, and and that's, that's because if you don't have a focus on audience, you lose track of what your journalism is meant to do. There's, there, there is a naive view, I think, about journalism that says that reporters want simply to find out important information. That's true to some end, but reporters can also get lost looking for boring information or um, ch chasing those things that animate them but no one else. There, and, and when you have no need to appeal to an audience, you find yourself doing that. You also find your journalism having no impact. It's, it's only because journalists speak to readers that governments are scared of journalists. Governments aren't scared of journalists because they're scared of information. If, if, if a person is acting in isolation and finds something out important about a government but can find no audience to publish it to, then the government is not scared of that, of that information. And that, that's, that's really the important nexus that has to exist in journalism. You need an audience to be purposeful. And, and the audience, you know, what we're seeing here and elsewhere, audience have a willingness to pay for that journalism and to make those businesses profitable. And no one gets rich running a media company, but they can focus on ways in which to make their journalism so vital and so important as to be worth paying for. And I think that's, you know, I think that's actually a worthwhile thing for journalists to aspire to. So you, uh, you mentioned before how the Saturday paper is sort of presenting itself as a bit of an antithesis to the sort of clickbait media that we're uh, coming accustomed to. What's your plan to grow the readership of the Saturday paper and take back some of those people who are so accustomed to getting the, the short form articles? I think, uh, I mean, as has been the case for uh, the Saturday paper since its launch and, and for the monthly before, um, 
readership grows by virtue of go doing good work. Like it, it's, it sounds like a very simple proposition, but if, if we continue to make journalism that is worthwhile, more and more people read it. And that's the experience of both those titles. They've continued to grow because um, fewer and fewer outlets do that journalism. And if not more and more people want it, then enough people want it for it to continue to grow. Um, and it's, uh, <clears throat> in, ter in terms of you know, strategies for, for expanding um, what it is a masthead like the Saturday paper can do, there's, you know, there's obviously all sorts of commercial thinking that goes into that. But at the, at the very heart of what is meaningful for us as, as journalists, it is to simply make sure that every week we go out trying as best we can to make sense of the country and to make sense of things that we don't know and hope that there is an audience that wishes to understand the country in the same way. I just wanted to spell a myth. I'm the CEO of Schwartz Media, 11 years today, actually, that I have run Schwartz Media. Let me, I'm actually happy to share the business model of the Saturday paper and how it's launched, how it actually launched with you. The Saturday paper financially launched purely on the foundation subscriptions. So the revenue that was generated by people who were prepared to buy into the Saturday paper and subscribe to it from the beginning, uh, without it having launched, in the trust that they had from the monthly and the quarterly essay and the other titles that Maury had published, that funding has actually perpetuated our growth each year. Um, and on top of that, then we've grown the audience. And the, as Eric said, the great work the journalism done has grown the, the readership, but it's absolutely nothing to do with Maury being a property developer. We are very proud that the Saturday paper has funded itself since launch. Um, and that is purely on the great work that Eric has done and the readership growth with that great foundation kind of funding from the beginning. So that is the truth. The quality is there, the audience is there. It's just that we've actually acknowledged they exist and built something for them and they're coming to it. So that's, sorry, I just had to add that in. Everybody does, everybody does. But I, I feel that after 11 years, I have to stand up and say that is absolutely not the trade, not the way. That is exciting to know that it, it, the, the way that it works, and I am a, a subscriber, <laughs> um, so I really enjoy the Saturday paper, but I was wondering what you thought about the models then for organisations like Fairfax that clearly don't seem to be working yeah. financially. Well, well, both of you, yeah. actually. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> we actually have a paid content model and we have, it, it actually wasn't through being, a, being intelligent or, or we actually decided when the, when the internet came in and was a presence in, in content, we were more worried about the sales of the monthly rather than developing a paid content model. We were worried that if we gave everything away for free that it would affect the sales of the monthly. So there was internal arguments years over years about actually we ended up doing the right thing, that we have a paid content model. So we have a rep, people pay for our content. You get one free article a week on the Saturday paper and you get three a month on the monthly. So we have educated this audience that if you want this content, sure you can go behind paywalls and do all of that, but going back to the values and ethics, I think that Eric talks about the social good, 
people are prepared to pay for our content. So I think that's the mistake they've made, that they have chased impressions because the model, the advertising model fell apart. You will you, you never, will, you know, they, they sell their traffic for one cent per thousand. Ours is $170 per thousand, if you want to look at it like that. Um, it's a different model and people pay for our content. So the engagement and time on site, if you, in that sense, is much higher. So the return, we, we weren't smart about it. We just um, were protecting the print edition, which obviously they didn't do. I think the, the other part of that is um, while a large media company like Fairfax will find it very difficult um, to turn around its business for, for various reasons, for things like the fact that they actually own printing presses and trucks and, and have newsrooms full of journalists and have bills for the redundancies that they paid to journalists who are no longer in those newsrooms. All of these things make those businesses quite structurally unsound because they were founded on really quite extraordinary revenue models and, and in, in seeing that model change didn't change their businesses um, accordingly. It doesn't mean that large companies can't fix those broken models. The New York Times, I think, is a really, really good example of this. And um, the New York Times, now their principal focus as a business, I was there a couple of weeks ago um, talking to their head of strategy, and he was explaining to me that um, it has it's taken them a long time to even have a strategy for their editorial department. Um, previously, every other part of the business had a strategy document, but ed editorial, the people who did the writing, thought that it was... Um, impossible to possibly quantify what it is we do as writers, and that um, you know that, that journalism is some kind of um, semi-magical thing that can't that can't be con contained or or have expectations around it. In 2014, I think they wrote their first strategy document for editorial, and and in doing so, reconfigured their entire business to say that what they as as a company now do is take trust. This is a horrible expression. There were many other horrible expressions used in this conversation with the New York Times. In the, in the, in the US, people um, are not embarrassed about talking like management consultants, and as such do, and it's not, it's not healthy. But um, they wanted just to take trust and convert it into digital subscriptions. And that, that is the very simple secret at the middle of their model, which is that a digital subscription costs very little to produce. It's not like the newspaper that has a press and ink and trucks and distribution points and news agents and other people all connected to it. It costs almost nothing once you've made the journalism to have another digital subscriber reading that journalism. And so their model is now configured around the way in which they can make their journalism something that people online will pay for. And that same model was available to any major publishing company. It's just that very few of them found themselves doing that. Hi. Um, uh, in the UK, pretty much the only home of fearless journalism left to centre is The Guardian. Uh, they've clung on to a non-paywall model, and um, I don't think it's a secret that they're you know, struggling to make ends meet. Uh, and they now have a pop-up on most of the um, online content saying, you know, while you're here, you know, we would like some money, etc., etc., is there anything, any alternative than a paywall for them going um, ahead? I mean, I, th I think the, the Guardian have historically been um, at the forefront of trying to make sense of what the internet was going to do to quality journalism. And I think they made a lot of really terrific decisions in the course of doing that. Um, they also had a lot of optimism about uh, the way in which 
um, doing good would be rewarded with good. And um, that's not necessarily always true, and particularly at those large scales. It, the Guardian need a lot more money than the Saturday paper to keep, keep themselves running every day. Um, I am not entirely sold on a membership model. I, I think um, it's something that asks your reader to decide whether or not they really care about your journalism rather than telling them that your journalism is something worth caring about. But then the, there are all sorts of um, more exotic models that The Guardian are trying, especially in the US where um, there is a greater focus on... Um, philanthropic giving and ways in which, although The Guardian is not structured as a charity, it could appeal to philanthropic sentiment about the social good of journalism. And I, and I, think, I think there is some parts of that, that that allow The Guardian to operate with investor-style underpinnings from people who are not investing, who are willing to give without without any return. Um, but it's, it's, it's a particularly fraught and niche model, I think. Um, and and I, you know, I, I suspect they will get to a point where they can um, scale back their business to the point at which the journalism they do is supported by their membership. The problem with that, though, is that as you scale back, your journalism becomes less impressive and your membership becomes less likely to pay for it. Okay. <laughs> Are there any questions at all about how the peepholes worked? Because I, I did read uh, The Voyeur's Motel, even though I know that to be a flawed text. And um, a lot of it's given over to... There's sort of like 16-inch by 16-inch square situation um, that were fitted just direct into the roof. Uh, had to be specially made, and so Gerald Foos had to have um, his wife assist him in the fitting of them. I don't, she never used the peepholes, we are to believe, but she knew of their existence and was apparently fine with it. Um, and the, they had a kind of vertical slot sit system so that uh, the very first night that um, Gator Lees went up into the attic to... Uh, apparently, the way that this worked was kind of like a gangway and... Um, you could hear people talking in all the rooms except for the one room where there was no talking. That was the room where they opened the peephole. And, of course, uh, this was the room in which a salesman was receiving oral sex. And as, uh, as Gator Lee, who's a very skinny and tall man, important detail in this story, and I hadn't got to it, also a very dapper creature, um, and has every place card he's ever written any story on in the last 70 or something years of being a reporter is, um, is hand-cut to fit his suit pocket, and he keeps them in the cellar of his house on the Upper East Side um, in boxes that he's decoupaged with details of the story. So we should have been suspicious of him much earlier, I think that's fair to say. But um, while he was in the roof, he was, uh, he was leering over this couple and um, found himself, he describes this in the very first chapter of the book, found himself unable to uh, divert his attention, which is to say that Gay Talese is a creep, um, and this is very immoral. This is not journalism, what I'm describing at this point. This is, uh, this is a crime, uh, as I describe it. Um, his tie, because he's a very dapper gentleman, slid through the peephole and dangled uh, over this amorous couple. Um, but the man's eyes were closed and the woman's head was away from him and uh, there was time enough for Gerald Foos to push him back from the peephole and pull his tie back out. Uh, I didn't want to have to tell that story. I was hoping someone would ask about the peepholes, but I... <laughs> I feel like secretly you all wanted to know. Thank you, Eric, for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I think that might be a nice end point for the discussion this evening. Um, please join me in thanking Eric. Um, also, thank you for your questions and discussion, and thank you to the Saturday Paper, our um, partner for the Future Forum series, um, and thank you for coming to ACCA this evening. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. <clears throat>